You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews 13, we're going to be looking at the passage beginning in verse 7 and going through verse 16. You lost an hour of sleep last night, so if you need to do something like this or smack yourself in the face or something, now's the time to do it to get yourself focused in here, okay? Uh, This is a passage, these verses, verses 7 through 16 here in Hebrews uh, chapter 13, this is a tough passage of scripture. Um, It doesn't flow really well. Um, It it seems kind of jumbled a little bit, and and one of the big pieces of it is that right in the midst of it, it uses uh, this understanding or this imagery from the Jewish faith, uh, and, and specifically the temple system and the temple system of sacrifice, that if you're unfamiliar with that, it seems like it's just kind of out of place where it is. And so uh, we're going to work through this today sort of piece by piece so we can see how all of these verses teach us about living a life of sacrifice. That's the goal for today, that we come out of today understanding what the Scripture is calling us today is to live a life of sacrifice And so let's begin with verse 7. Again, we're going to work sort of piece by piece, verse, or a couple verses at a time and walk through this. Look at verse 7, if you will, with me and follow along. He writes, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. He says, remember your leaders. Some of your translations say something along the lines of remember those who rule over you or have the rule over you. And uh, that's not intended for us to uh, imagine that these leaders have absolute dictatorship over us, but that they have authority, God-given biblical authority to lead the church. But he says, remember those who spoke to you or who have spoken to you, that word and those phrases call us to understand that what he's referring to here is for them to remember those leaders in their past who were faithful to the word of God. He says that they're to remember them, that they spoke, they taught. He's also to remember their lives and their faith. He says, remember them and consider their outcome or the outcome of their way of life. Uh, Outcome there is a word that essentially means exit or end. So it's another clue for us to understand that he's talking about former leaders of this church that these individuals were a part of who had been faithful, but not only faithful in what they taught, but faithful in how they lived. Consider the outcome of their way of life. And, that, and what we understand to that is that it does not mean that they were perfect leaders. It does not mean they never made a mistake. But it means that their life demonstrated that they were faithful to God all the way through to the end. And so one of the things this calls us to is to remember their sacrifice. To remember what they did in terms of speaking and teaching the word of God to us. And even more importantly, in demonstrating the word of God to us. Leadership in the church, however you define it. The Bible defines it with words like bishop and elder and overseer and deacon and pastor and shepherd. But however you define it, leadership in the church must not simply be heard, but must also be seen. It is to remember the outcome of their way of life. What was demonstrated before the church in those moments. Very early in my, in my ministry 
experience. I was with a group of pastors, and uh, there were several of us from several different churches in Kentucky, and we were at a location. We were looking to do uh, mission work from multiple churches over the course of a summer, sort of uh, together and cohesively. And we were walking through this park, and uh, I noticed uh, over onto the side on the ground there was a Gatorade bottle there, and there was a trash can just a few steps away from it. And as we're walking through it, I watched one pastor deviate from the direction the group was taking and go over and pick up the Gatorade bottle and walk it over a few steps and throw it away. Seemingly insignificant, right? But there was another pastor that was walking next to me, and he, he knew I was young in the ministry, and he pulled me to the side, and he said, see, he said, people with position and power tell people to pick the bottle up. People who lead pick it up and throw it away. Consider your leaders who were faithful, who spoke the word of God, but also consider the outcome of their life. And so leadership is not just to be heard, leadership is to be seen. And so he calls them to remember them. And it's really a call to remember their life of sacrifice in leading them. Then he calls them to remember Jesus. Look at verses 8 and 9. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse or strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. He calls them to remember Jesus. And the connection here is specifically back to verse 7, those who spoke to them the word of God. Uh, the connection or the assumption here is that they spoke the word of Jesus and that Jesus was the same yesterday and Jesus is the same today and that he will be the same forever. In other words, he's saying, remember the context or the situation of this letter. This group of Jewish Christians who are being tempted by persecution, by things that are going on in their own community to go back to their old way of religion. And he's saying, remember your leaders because the Jesus they taught you is the same Jesus that they taught you who's alive today, who will be alive forever and forever and ever, and he will not change. And the connection is for them to understand that that becomes their focus, Jesus. Not all the strange teachings, not all the different teachings that are going on around them or deceiving them in their community. Evidently, one of the situations that was there to deceive them was this issue of food. Look again how he says it in verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We know from the bulk of the New Testament that particularly among Jewish Christians, there was always this, uh, this, this situation, this impact, this group or this people who were coming to those who were of the Jewish faith but who had said yes to Jesus now to say, it's great that you've said yes to Jesus, but there are some other things you should be doing as well. It's great that you believe, but don't forget you got to eat the right foods. Paul, as an example to the church in Rome, in Romans 14, 1 through 3, says this, For the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinion. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. 
We know from, the, again, the fullness of the New Testament, there were issues of circumcision. There were issues of some people saying some days were more holy than the other. All these things were filtering in through this new church community and were saying to people, it's nice that you believe in Jesus, but make sure you add on these other things. And what the author says here is he calls us to remember Jesus and, as we'll see in just a moment, calls us to remember his sacrifice is found the, the the focal point of it's right there in verse 9. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. It's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by all the extras, not by all the extra biblical rules and regulations. The grace of Jesus, Jesus himself, his gospel does not change. You are saved by grace. You are sanctified, made more like Jesus on this earth by grace. And one day you will be glorified by grace. And it is good for the heart to be strengthened and strengthened alone by grace. Kent Hughes in his commentary on this passage says this. Those who imagined spiritual growth came from a special menu had not only become ignorant of the necessity of grace for growth, but they actually blocked strengthening grace by their proud little rules. You know what another name for proud little rules is? Legalism. I was involved in a text conversation just this week with a friend who's serving at a church in another city. He's been there just a few months. He's not on staff, but he's being involved in the lay leadership of the church. And I asked him how it was going. He said, it's going good. He said, but boy, we got a task on our hand. I said, why? He said, because what we're trying to do is to break this church out of the bonds of legalism. The heart is not strengthened by rules. The heart is not strengthened by legalism. We grow by grace. And to the, to the argument of this, some people say, well, we've got to have rules. Well, of course we have to have rules. You need rules for, for things to function. But understand, rules in themselves don't change people. If rules in themselves changed people, we'd live in a country with no murder and no stealing. And people would drive 45 in front of this church instead of 70. Because there's a big sign that says 4 or 5. Rules do not change the heart of a person. Rules do not strengthen the heart of a person. Grace does so. That's why we are called to live under a new covenant. It is the new covenant that is given to us through Jesus and through his sacrifice. Got any little rules in your life or my life that need to be purged? Got any that you need to take before the Lord and submit them to his cross. Sometimes when we remember our leaders, quite honestly, that in our past, sometimes we come to the realization that maybe all that they said really wasn't what needed to be said. That's okay. Because that's God working through us to call us more to him. And that's what the next section of the scripture does, verses 10 through 14. He says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. 
For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. How do you purge the legalism? How do you strengthen yourself by grace? You go to Jesus. In chapter 12, we were told to look to Jesus. We were told to consider Jesus. We were told in the the comparison between Mount Sinai and and Mount Zion that we have come to Jesus. And so here the author continues that theme and he says, let us go to Jesus. And here's where sort of this confusion of this passage lies, right? Because as we read it, we we see altars and serving the tent and animals and blood and the camp. And what does all this mean? Uh, Again, understand to the Jewish listener or reader of this... They would have known exactly where their mind would have gone to the days of the Old Testament, to the days of the Old Covenant, and what would have transpired in the days of the offerings. We need a little help sometimes, so I'm going to, in the time allotted, give you as much help as I can to understand what all this means. The priests of the Old Testament were allowed to eat of the remainder of the various offerings, so the guilt offering, the grain offering, the burnt offering, they, they were allowed. The priests of the Old Testament did not have jobs other than being priests. There were no bivocational priests. So to have food for themselves, to have food for their families, they were allowed to take what was left over from those various sacrifices and either eat there within the confines of the temple or elsewhere. But there was one offering of which no one ate. It was the sin offering. In Leviticus chapter 6, verse 30, this is what God says as he's putting these things together for Moses and to tell to Israel. As he's talking about the priests and the offerings in Luke 6, verse 30, it says, But no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up. With fire, So he says, when, in Leviticus, he says, when you have uh, an offering for sin and the blood is brought into the Holy of Holies, into the most holy of places within then the tent, later within the tabernacle or the temple, when that blood is brought in, the meat from that animal has to be discarded, has to be taken out and burned. No one can eat of that. And more specifically in Leviticus, when we get to Leviticus 16, talking specifically about the Day of Atonement and what would happen, this is what God then said in verses 27 and 28. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire, and he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. So again, these, these animals that were offered for the specific sin offering, for the offering of atonement, when the blood was brought into the most holy of place, all the rest of it had to be taken outside the camp and discarded. Not only just discarded, if you had, to, had the responsibility or the job of taking it outside of the camp, you weren't back, allowed back in until you were cleansed. That's how serious the nature of this was. Now, first of all, let's just interject. Aren't we glad we don't have to do that anymore? Aren't we glad that one offering has been made by which all are made perfect in Christ? 
But the camp, therefore, that the, that the Hebrews author reverts to or re- responds to, verse 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. The camp is that place where Israel lived. It is that place where Israel resided. It is that place where Israel worshipped. And before that person could come back into the camp, that person had to be cleansed of that which was offered for sin. So look at what he does here with this. So he, he uses this. Again, they would, have, they would have gone to that immediately. But look at what he does in this in, in accordance to Jesus, verse 12. Let's read that again. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the, the people through his own blood. He didn't suffer outside the camp But at this point in history, when Jesus' body is offered up for us, Jerusalem is that center of worship. It is that center place of Israel's life and their worship because of the temple. And so he did not have his body offered up there. Why? Because he was made to be sin. He was made to be unclean. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, He made him to be sin who knew no sin. And so the, the author of Hebrews is saying to these people and saying to us, Jesus went outside the gate, referencing outside the camp, to demonstrate the breaking of the Old Testament way of atonement or forgiveness. Now let's, let's understand here for just a moment what the camp represents and then really even what the city of Jerusalem represents at Jesus' time. It represents the religion of the day. It represents the people's religion. And so the, the sacrifice of Jesus, his life of sacrifice, that it goes all the way to the end, is done outside of the city, outside of the gate. The author is in a sense here really saying, make your choice. Remember, through the context of this letter, it's been, don't drift back. Don't go back to the old ways. Don't, don't do this. If you do this, there's going to be a heavy price to pay, a heavy penalty to, pray and, to pay. And so here, he's really kind of put it in that term. Make your choice. Either go to Jesus outside of the system or stay in the camp. But you can't do both. You can't say yes to Jesus and stay in the camp, stay in the city, stay in the system. And in doing this, Jesus endured much shame and rejection. Look at verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Chapter 12, verse 3 talked about the reproach that he endured from sinners. But understand, Jesus not only endured from sinners, he endured from the religious of his day as well. I just picked out three out of the Gospels. Words of the Pharisees. Why do your disciples break the traditions of elders? Words to the disciples by the Pharisees. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Words of the Pharisees directly to Jesus. Why is is this person who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus suffered the reproach of eventually offering his body up outside the gate, not only from a lost world, but from the religious of his day, who did not like it that he was bucking the trend, that he was going against the system. 
And he suffered and endured the reproach from all. And so the writer calls these people and calls us today. Therefore, let us go to him. How do you beat legalism? How do you beat diverse and strange teachings? How do you do all this? You go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. In other words, you do what Jesus, you go to Jesus and you follow his life of sacrifice and you understand that that very well may mean you're going to suffer as well. Since these Christians live in Rome, the author is speaking metaphorically. He's not obviously not calling them to go outside of the city of Jerusalem. They don't live in Jerusalem. They live in Rome. So it's imagery. It's called to, it's continuing to call them outside of the system of religion and calling them to Jesus and the deepening of their relationship with him. And consider and bear the reproach he endured. Here the word reproach is just that, that simple word that means verbal insults and abuse. But understand that throughout the history of this world, Christians who have dared stepped outside the camp or stepped outside the gate have endured much worse by saying yes to Jesus. Death, mistreatment, imprisonment, I, I, like most of you, have been following this whole uh, Russian-Ukrainian thing carefully. And as I've studied over the last couple weeks, there's an interesting piece to this conflict that you won't find in the mainstream media. There's a religious piece to this conflict. In the 11th century, a large group of people broke off of then known as the Roman Catholic Church in what was called the Great Schism or the Great Divide and began what is known today as religions known as Russian Orthodoxy or Eastern Orthodoxy, Christian-based religions in their foundation. The big difference is Russian Orthodoxy ties Christianity with military and political power. And so several years ago in the Ukraine, that Orthodox Church broke ties with Russian Orthodoxy. In a declarative statement, they said, we, we are not tying ourselves to things of this world any longer. We are tying ourselves to the gospel. We are tying ourselves to Jesus. We are connecting ourselves to the things of the Bible, not the things of this world. And so consequently, not only is there an issue to regain that land, but there's an issue to regain that land for the purpose of submitting them once again under that Russian Orthodoxy Christianity that is tied to political and material power. And just last week, I read of a priest in Russia who was arrested. Why? Because in his sermon, he preached against the invasion of Ukraine. He called for the people of Russia to rise up and, and to, to move against the political and the war machine powers who were, as, he, as I quote, having Christians kill Christians. And one of the things he said in his sermon was this, let's not repeat the crimes of those who hailed Hitler's deeds on September 1st, 1939. That was the day, of course, that Germany invaded Poland. That priest went outside the camp, outside the gate, went to Jesus and is bearing the reproach for his actions. Do you understand how privileged we are? Do you understand that I can stand up here, or you can be out there, or you can go on your social media and you can say whatever it is you want? 
And maybe that time is not long for our country. I don't know. Perhaps when that time comes for our country, we'll find out who's really in and who's really out. But this priest went to Jesus, which is what the author is calling them to do. Go to Jesus and bear the reproach that he endured. How can they do this? How can they be called to do this? How can you and I be called to do this? Verse 14 again. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. It's the continued teaching that's been woven all the way out through Hebrews and all the way out through the New Testament that Christian brothers and sisters, this is not our home. This is not our city. This is not our country. When you said yes to Jesus, Paul says you became a citizen of heaven and an ambassador of the kingdom wherever it is you live. And you may pay taxes here, but your, your devotion, your allegiance is to the kingdom. And when we get that, when we understand that, when it becomes who we are and part of who we are, we will gladly go outside the camp to Jesus and bear whatever reproach we're called to endure. And part of that reproach is to be living a life of sacrifice, which is where we'll end with verses 15 and 16. Read through those with me. Through him. Now, notice that phrase. Notice that phrase, through him, meaning through Jesus' example, through the power of the life of Jesus, through the power that is now in you because of the Holy Spirit. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. He calls them to two specific sacrifices. I think there are more sacrifices in the New Testament in particular that we're called to, but we'll deal with these two. The first is a sacrifice of praise, and it is written in such a way that we continually offer it up. That praise is to be continually on our lips. Now, I think we struggle with this because we have confined praise as part of praise and worship to the 11 o'clock hour or to the special concerts that we go or the special nights we have special music or whatever the case may be. Here, it is not speaking to that type of praise. It is speaking to the type of praise that is the offering up of words as worship to God. It does not have to be sung. It can be spoken. Listen from Psalm 34, verses 1 through 3. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name forever. There's nothing in that that is about music. Now, the Psalms were always, often used musically. But that is a call in that psalm to have a lifestyle of praise, that the praise of God would be forever on our lips Jesus speaks to the words as well. Matthew 12, beginning verse 33, as he's speaking and teaching against the Pharisees, a tree known by its fruit, he says this in verse 33 of Matthew 12. Either make the tree good and the fruit good, or make the tree bad and the fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. 
You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So he says to these Pharisees who are calling him blasphemous, how can you say anything good when what your heart is full of is evil? How can there be a continual life of praise in your life when what is within you is evil? Let me just ask us, what is our heart full of these days? The question that was prompted to me as I prepared this week, and and I hope the question that's being prompted to you is, my question was, where is my praise lacking? If Hebrews is teaching me that praise is to be continually on my lips, if Psalm 34 is teaching me that I'm continually to be exalting God in my speech and my words, if Matthew 12 is teaching me that what comes out of my heart is, uh, out of my mouth is an indication of what's in my heart, where does my praise need to increase? And here's the statement that came to me where praise is lacking look at what you're complaining the most about let me say that one again because it hit me and I hope it hit you where praise is lacking look at what you're complaining the most about if you want to know where praise needs to increase in your life if I need to know where praise needs to increase in my life then we should look at what we're complaining the most about because if we're complaining we're not praising if we're complaining about prices if we're complaining about empty shelves if we're complaining about all the things that are going around around us then we're not praising for the ability to get what we need to get no matter what it costs or that we're not get, been given 30 minutes to pack one bag out of our house and trudge 20, 30, 100 miles to get on an overcrowded train or an overcrowded bus to try to get to somewhere that maybe somebody will take us in. Maybe somebody will give us a chance. You want to know where your praise lacks? Look at where you're complaining the most. Not only a sacrifice of praise, but a sacrifice of ourselves and our possessions. Again, verse 16. Do not neglect to do good. That is a sacrifice of yourself. That when you see a need. When you see a person in need. When you see a situation. You respond to it. Do not neglect to do good. And then the second part of that. To share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We can tell a lot about who we trust in. Or what we trust in. By how well we part with it. My buddy Blake Lawyer over in Shelbyville preached last week and I was listening to it on the podcast and he made this statement that goes really well today. He said, when God shows you what you've got, you'll part with what you have. When God shows you what you've got, you'll part with what you have. And all through Hebrews, God has been showing us what we have is Jesus. What we have is grace. What we have is forgiveness. What we have is power. What we have is authority through the Spirit. What we have is the promise of a day to come that is millions of times better than any day we could live here on this earth. And when we know that, we can part with anything. Our time, our talents, our monies, our energy, our efforts, our material goods. All through this letter and all through the entirety of the Bible, God has shown us who we have and what we have. And his name is Jesus. So let us go to him. Let's go to him outside 
the camp. Let us go to him outside the gate. Let us go to him outside the system. Let's bear the reproach that we will endure, but let the praise of him be the default position of our mouth. Let the life of sacrifice to him be the default position of our works. And may we be strengthened by grace. And may we strengthen others by grace. That they may know of the one who has come to save. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.